How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing extreme weather. Snowmageddon, epic floods along the Mississippi River, Hurricane Irene, Snowtober. Weather is definitely wild and crazy these days. The U.S. government reports that 2011 had a record number of disasters causing more than $1 billion in damage. The number of incidents rose to 12, up from the previous high of 9 in 2009. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says the increases are attributed to rising population along the coasts, more insurable property, and more extreme storms. For the next hour, we'll discuss the science and economics of freak weather in the United States and around the world with four experts, as well as our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Joining us, we're delighted to welcome Chris Field, Director of the Department of Global Ecology at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford. We have Dave Freeberg, who's founder and CEO of the Climate Corporation, a startup company that helps farmers manage weather risk. Karen O'Brien is a professor of sociology and human geography from the University of Oslo, and Michael Oppenheimer is a professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton. We should mention that Chris Field, Karen O'Brien, and Michael Oppenheimer are here in town participating in an IPCC authors meeting, a group of scientists that just created a new report on extreme weather around the world. Please welcome them to Climate One. Chris Field, let's begin with you. You're a, a leader in the uh, UN panel on climate change, and there's a new report on extreme weather. What's the headline? What's, what's the, the takeaway from the, the research on extreme weather around the world? Our special report on extreme events and disasters really reached three main conclusions. The first is that extreme events are increasing, extremes of high temperature, heavy precipitation, droughts, and things that are associated with high sea levels. The second key conclusion is that losses are increasing, as you've already described for the U.S. It's mainly because there's more stuff in the way of the extreme weather. And the third, probably the most important message, is there's a lot we can do about it. There are smart things that don't necessarily cost a lot that can be protective of assets and protective of lives. Okay, so there's more happening, more in the way, and there's things we we can do about it. Uh, Michael Oppenheimer, anything to add there in terms of what the headline is, in terms of uh, IPCC doesn't create new science, but they assess what's in the literature. Sure. Uh, I, I would add just two points. As scientists are killjoys in a way. Everybody has a lot of fun with the weather, and everything that goes wrong seems to be due to climate change. But, in fact, we've tried to be very careful about it. And there are three things, and Chris mentioned some of them, that uh, we're having that you're quite familiar with that are changing. The frequency of very hot days and heat waves. Very heavy precipitation events. My basement flooded twice last summer, once from Hurricane Irene, and once from a storm that nobody heard of before that that hit us with seven inches. I live in New York City in the space of 24 hours, which for that part of the world is a lot. And uh, uh, extremes of high seas, uh, you know, extreme high seas along the coast are increasing. That's partly due to the fact that the sea level is rising. So when you put that together, the climate is changing, 
and we have to learn how to deal with it. And the good news, as Chris said, is there are a lot of specific examples of where we have been successful. We're falling behind right now. But actually, in certain places at certain times, people have done a very good job. For instance, heat wave deaths, in, when, when the governments in charge pay attention to it, it's possible to avoid by a factor of 10 or 100 to reduce by that much the number of people that die in heat waves. That's been the history recently in Europe where up to 40,000 people died in a heat wave in 2003. A similar, although smaller scale heat wave hit France a few years later, the death rates were down by 100. So there are things we can do. We ought to be doing them now. And we'll get to the, the human response later, but I want to pick up on sea level rise because I thought that was something that was like 2100, and you're talking about the impacts no. of sea level rise today. Well, one of the things where we have high confidence in is that the sea level has already risen about seven inches over the last century, and the rise is continuing, and we know why. Uh, water is a fluid. When you heat it, like we're heating the sea, it expands. Ice, like glaciers, is melting, and the big ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica also appear to be adding water to the sea. That's happening now, and that's something we have to deal with now. If you live in a coastal city like this one, it's having an effect already. Karen O'Brien, there's some things that humans are doing that are increasing the risk and vulnerability, and that was your part of the report. Tell us about how we're doing dumb things that are making this worse. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of times we think of, you know, we're, I'm interested in who's vulnerable, who's going to be affected, and a lot of the vulnerability is actually related to social policies and our lack, as, as Michael said, of preparedness or of, um, you know, ways of actually reducing our risk through social um, actions. And so um, there's a lot of things that we actually can do for disaster risk reduction and climate adaptation that would help us be better off in the future, given that we know that the risks are changing now. Okay, we'll get to some examples later. Uh, David Freeberg, you are not a scientist. You, you, your business, you have a startup company that's based on some of the science here, some of the scientific trends. Uh, tell us what you're doing and, and how you're connecting science with, uh, with farmers and in the, in the commercial markets. So we sell a product that uh, ensures farmers against uh, bad weather events. So we monitor the weather on a very localized basis. A farmer will buy an insurance policy from us. And if certain weather events occur that will cause an impact on the yield of that farmer's crop, we will send the farmer a check, um, effectively insuring them against lost crop yield as a result of weather events. And so to do that, we are simulating the weather um, on a very local basis for the next several years, um, trying to determine what the distribution of outcomes might be, and that's how we determine what prices we should charge to insure against weather events. And a lot of this is based on IPCC science, or is it based on, you know, to what extent are you using the science? So I would say we generally um, build our models on a climatological approach. So we use mm -hmm. a variety of statistical methods to determine what the distribution of outcomes can be. And um, there are indicators that are applied um, to those models, including uh, trends and, and other trending forecasts uh, that, that folks are, are developing, as well as seasonal indicators like La Nina and El Nino and so on, um, which also play a role because we're a little more short range in terms of the, the modeling that we're doing. We're not modeling mm -hmm. 10 to 20 years out. We're modeling the next one to two years. And that's often a debate with climatologists who like to have a couple of decades of data before they will predict a trend, and, you know, people don't buy insurance that way. So let's talk about the, the time frame here. You need something that's really immediate, and, and these researchers like to think in, you know, decades or preferably millennia, right, for, to... Uh, Michael? Ten or 20 years is a short time to conclude anything. We like, I mean, I personally like a run of 30, 40, 50 years of data, and in some cases we have that. I mean, the, there's one weather station that's from the mid-1600s, but really good temperature data, for instance, comes from the middle of the of 
two centuries ago, the 19th century. But with other features of the climate, like hurricanes, we don't have a long string of good data. So wrestling to the ground, you know, how much is the human influence and how much is natural can be very difficult. That's a question. Chris Field? I was just going to say, uh, with this new report, a lot of what we tried to grapple with is what are the responses and the consequences of current variability, exactly the kinds of things that David is dealing with, and how is this going to change in the future. And we have good information based on the information that is available, mostly over the last 100 years or so, on what the trends look like. The climate models allow us to have reasonably high confidence in changes in some of the extremes, and that was really one of the key features in the new report is, is projections showing that extremes of high temperature drought and heavy precipitation will increase in the future. In coming decades, maybe not in the time frame that David's modeling now, but in the future so that when we're building long-term infrastructure like uh, levee systems or causeways or bridges, we really ought to be aware of these. And, and one of the great challenges and one of the really exciting consequences of doing this report is we had a chance to think about, well, what are the implications of things we do now for things that we also need to be doing in the uh, decades out into the future. So let's talk, drill a little bit into the high temperature, coastal flooding, things that we can relate to here in, in California. That's one of those areas where, as well as extreme rain and droughts, those are areas where there's high um, high confidence that those things are actually increasing because of man-made co- uh, climate change. Is that right? We can be confident that extremes in, in high temperatures and extremes in heavy precipitation have a clear fingerprint of human effects already. Uh, it's a little less clear for the, the droughts. Uh, droughts tend to have a very large component that's due to water management and a bunch of other things that, that you can only see the consequences of on a long period. But the attribution is, as we call it in the climate science business, can, who can you blame, uh, is clear for the trends in, in heat waves, and heavy precipitation. That doesn't mean we can attribute a single event to climate change, but the trends we know. So you can't, we can't say, no one up here will say, we caused Hurricane Irene. That's correct. Would you say that... We cannot say that. We increased the, the, the probability of something like Hurricane Irene, and it happened. With hurricanes, it's a little difficult, but with other features of the climate system, you, that's a way to look at it. What, how would the chances increase? It's a roll of the dice. The load of the and dice. The roll of the dice used to be one in six. Maybe now it's one in five, one in four, or one in three. And what has been the, the popular mainstream media reaction to this report? The report's not fully out yet, but it was, it was covered a, f- a few weeks ago. It was released at the United Nations Summit in, uh, in South Africa. How did it, how did it get played? I think it got very good coverage. Michael Oppenheimer, yeah, or Chris Field. Uh, well, the, uh, the the news on the report was was leaked uh, when um, New York City had its freak snowstorm in October, <laughs> and uh, it the leak basically let people see that there was a connection between extremes and uh, and real impacts on real people. Uh, you know, it's nothing I, like a like <clears throat> a, a event that hits the sort of the the media establishment on the Upper West Side of New York to kind of think, oh, this is really happening, yes. You know, uh, we're willing to uh, take advantage of uh, symbolism to help us make the points in the report. We used to have a saying in the news business that, uh, yeah, the story is what the editor sees on the way to work in the morning, and, you know, when the subway's flooding, it kind of, kind of drives, it, drives it home. Um, any other thoughts on, on the media coverage, you know, how it was played? So much of the media has been dominated lately about skepticism about the science that you do and, and people, you know, saying that, well, you're Michael Oppenheimer. Well, I, you know, given that 
the message is a sort of complicated, excuse me, <clears throat> is a complicated one in a way. That is, it's not about necessarily there's, you know, more killer storms. It's a more subtle message about what can you do to defend yourselves and ourselves. I thought it got very good and very accurate coverage. I didn't see any big exaggerations like we're all going to die tomorrow. I think maybe the, the media, some parts of the media, is getting a little more sophisticated about dealing with this problem. Karen O'Brien, you're in Europe. You probably have a little bit of a different perspective. How did it play in Europe? It was um, very it, – it, it, we've had a really warm winter in some parts of Europe. You know, in Norway, we haven't had – we didn't get snow until last week. And when the report came out, Norway, who doesn't necessarily think it's vulnerable to extreme events, actually experienced a hurricane on the West Coast that cost billions and blew off home, you know, roofs of houses and things. So it really – you know, extreme weather is something that people feel, they see, they turn on the news, and they look at Thailand, they look at um, what's going on around the world. So, so it really did receive a lot of attention and a lot of um, interest. David, any thoughts on the media? Do you have a, uh, the, the media coverage of it? No, I, we purposefully avoid a lot of the discussions about... Um, You're very data-driven. Causality, yeah. right. So mm-hmm. I would say that um, we're not as interested in identifying root causes of trends and signals in Changing, like changing climate and changing weather patterns. We're more interested in modeling them and helping to protect against them occurring with our product. So our customers are farmers. Farmers will simply tell you the weather is changing. It's not what it used to be. They don't um, care why. It's just like it's changing. I've got to protect against it. Yeah, I purposefully avoid the discussion about why. Um, I would say uh, farmers know that it's changing, and they're trying to figure out what to do about it. And in parts of the country, it's changing to the extent that it's requiring a change in, in behavior. Texas, it's very difficult to farm right now. There's a significant drought um, that's persisting. And uh, farmers simply can't um, grow their crops like they used to in Texas. So it could be that they may not be able to farm in Texas for the near term. But let's talk a little bit about the costs of this. I mean, some of this cost is being borne by taxpayers. I believe 2011 was a, was a, a high year in terms of federal crop insurance. Uh, right? Is that, is that true? Yeah, the most expensive year, I think, estimates are over $12 billion is what it's going to cost the U.S. taxpayer for the federal crop insurance program, 2011. Compared to a normal year is what, $8 billion? Well, this, it's driven partly by commodity prices, but 10 years ago it would have been about one-sixth that cost or one-fifth that cost. And so that's one reason. There are a lot of reasons for driving up food prices. So are the kinds of things that these scientists are here talking today are going to affect the food prices of everyone here in the audience? Or there's going to be well, if you think about so prices are driven by supply. And so go back a few years, um, the supply for the wheat crop globally was decimated not by a single weather event, but by sig- several extreme weather events occurring globally around the same time. So there was an extreme drought in Russia around the same time that there was extreme flooding in Australia, two major wheat production markets. And so that year, there was a very significant wheat shortage. And a lot of folks have speculated that the Arab Spring may have been driven by a food shortage um, or uh, um, sparked by that for, yeah. sparked by mm-hmm. that, or insurmountable um, food prices as a result of wheat supplies um, uh, being significantly diminished. So I think what we see globally is you may have a good year, you may have another good year, but globally, food supplies are going to be affected by volatility in production output each year, and that's going to affect the global supply of food and as a result, prices are going to go up. Can global supply expand? So, um, Normally, if the price of something goes up, the more suppliers enter the market. Yeah, we, are, we, we, well, this becomes a little bit self-serving. We believe that crop insurance can actually serve a need for, um, or weather insurance can serve a significant need in helping to expand agricultural development. The, there are some estimates that say that there's over 80 million acres of arable land in Brazil that go undeveloped each year. 
because local farmers simply can't afford to take on the weather risk associated with farming. They might have a good season, but there's a one in four chance that they get completely wiped out. So to borrow money from the bank, put their families at risk and risk going bankrupt is simply too much of a risk for them to take on to actually go out and farm the land. Now, there have been some trial programs that the UN, um, through the World Food Program, put on recently in Kenya where they were able to encourage agricultural development, get local farmers to farm by giving them free crop insurance. So there is um, effectively this concept where if you take the risk of the weather out of farming, you can start to encourage agricultural development and expand the the global food supply. Um, But it's a very costly and and challenging effort to, to, to undertake globally. Any other thoughts on that, whether, you know, you're, the science you're talking about is going to affect global food supply? Chris Field? Well, there are several things you can do to, to address global food supply. You can clear new land. Uh, you can invest in technology in order to increase yields on, uh, on the, the land that's already arable. But what we see is that as whatever kind of investments you make, you tend to get more and more sensitive to the volatility. Uh, even when you invest more in fertilizer and mechanization, uh, what you tend to do is find yourself more sensitive to the weather. So there really is no way to escape the problem of variability and how you deal with it. So having Michael up another. Yeah, there is some evidence for the U.S. in particular. There's one study done at Stanford that shows, that argues that the climate changes that have already occurred have had a significant effect on productivity. So that the productivity growth has fallen below what it would have been otherwise because of the effect of climate change. But I've heard some people say that the warming actually makes certain climates uh, hospitable to agriculture that weren't before, right? As things go, crops can move to the north, uh, that might expand the the arable uh, land. There is an interesting question about the winners and losers. Uh, Some areas are probably going to lose pretty soon. Some areas may win for a while. And how that will balance out is uh, uncertain. It probably doesn't – it probably means global food supply – isn't threatened by climate change on the whole, but we don't have a global food supply. We have certain people in certain places that even today, when there's globally enough food, don't get the food. So this is another pressure that will be added to a system which already sees people sort of falling through the cracks. I should should point out that a lot of the um, predictions we have of who the winners and losers are going to be are based on changes in average conditions rather than on extreme events. So we don't know how pests, you know, changes in pests and um, diseases of crops and those extreme um, rainfalls that happen in the summer will affect it. And Norway, which thinks that, you know, warmer temperatures will benefit agriculture, has had extreme um, rains in the summer. So the cattle, the cows don't get enough to eat. So we don't have butter this Christmas and we have to import butter. And, um, yeah, it's had a lot of um, unpredictable impacts on the so-called winners. The techno-optimists would say that we can genetically uh, design crops that will be more drought resilient and that, that sort of thing. Maybe, David Freeberg, is that your customers maybe working on that, right? That might not be so good for your business, but it might be good for the It's good for the world. Um, Monsanto publicly stated that they think they can get to 300 bushel corn in the next 10 to 15 years. 300 bushels per acre, which is the... the which, average. I mean, today you're looking at 200 bushels, and 20 years ago we were 100 bushels, which is... So it's um, pretty significant continued improvements. Now, they're drought-resistant. Corn may or may not, um, you know. Which you have to buy every year from Monsanto, probably. Yeah, and um, I would say that the, uh, the, the, the sort of um, the problem with drought-resistant corn is that there's certain conditions, certain drought conditions that it's resistant to, and there's certain drought conditions that it's not. And so um, it's, it's not necessarily been tested in a production scale um, way yet to see how it works. I should make a pitch for farmers, you know, over the last... 
of 50 years, global food production has increased by 1% to 2% per year in almost a clock-like work way. And uh, it's been very spectacular. It's meant that there were millions of acres that we didn't have to cut down forests. And it's meant that uh, food prices were going down over much of that period. It's really a remarkable accomplishment uh, at the global scale. But there are a number of indications that food production is threatened in the future. Uh, partly, I see food security as uh, kind of at the, the heart of a perfect storm. There's climate change, the issue we've been talking about. There's a population that continues to grow. There's a big demand for an increase in using farmland for the production of biomass energy. And there also was a dramatic increase in the preference of uh, people around the world for meat-based diets, all of which mm-hmm. requires more cropland per person. You put all those things together, and we're going to need to get every bit of yield increase we can get in the future. And let's talk about uh, water, because water is kind of you know, trickling through all of this. I don't know how you addressed water specifically. Well, you've been talking about uh, extreme weather events. There's both too much and, and not enough not enough water. Um, but did you really sort of dial in on water? Because a lot of people think that that's where climate will come home to some people first. They'll feel the water impacts most directly in their lives. Probably in California, that's right. Uh, California has always been short of water, and uh, many of the implications of climate change are decreasing the water security for California, particularly through its effect on the snowpack. But worldwide, we're seeing a trend both in uh, the fraction of the rainfall that falls in the heaviest precipitation events. Uh, That's been true across uh, much of North America, uh, Northern Europe. Uh, But we're also seeing an increase in the um, duration and the intensity of droughts in many parts of the world, including in the southwest of the U.S. and in much of Africa. And Dust Bowl conditions, but now in particular, close well, to Dust I mean, Bowl. Whether they're Dust Bowl or not, they're very tough conditions for making a living as a farmer. And the projections are that those will continue to increase. And, and it makes it really clear that we're not looking at uniform patterns everywhere. Some places wetter, some places drier. And that's hard to get across. Uh, people say, oh, it snowed in Washington or it snowed, oh, global warming, hooey, right? It's hard to get that nuance across that it's both more and less hot and cold. That's a tough thing to communicate. Absolutely. We're discussing uh, extreme weather events at Climate One. Our guests today are Chris Field from Stanford University, the Carnegie Institution for Science, Dave Freeberg, founder and CEO of the Climate Corporation, Karen O'Brien, a professor of sociology and human geography at the University of Oslo, and Michael Oppenheimer, professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, one of the themes in, uh, that people talk a lot about these days are resilience, resilient communities. So, Karen O'Brien, what does that mean? People able, you know, we're not going to be able to prevent these events. What is resilience? Mm-hmm. Well, resilience is, um, I mean, it's about being able to handle change, being able to, um, to respond to change in a way that doesn't actually flip the system into a whole different state of being. So um, a lot of people think of resilience as just be going back to what it was before and things, but it also it's about being adaptive, being flexible, being able to deal with these changes that are coming in a way that um, that is, has both a short-term and a long-term perspective. So community resilience, for example, is about how people together work to um, respond to changes. And minimize damages. I think there's, mm-hmm. uh, is it Bangladesh that's one of the examples uh, where there have been some fortifications against extreme weather events that have helped reduce deaths and help people sort of um, mm-hmm. bounce back? Yeah, I, I was there uh, a few years ago. It's quite a few years ago now. And, you know, the people in the southern part of the country, they all live at sea level. Some of them have essentially temporary dwellings on sandbars. 
So these cyclones used to rip their, still do rip their way up the Bay of Bengal, slam in. And, you know, these were among the poorest people in the world. And there was one cyclone in 1970, may have killed a million people. We don't even know because nobody counts. So they went about, eventually, they went about installing an early warning system so people had uh, uh, knew the threat was coming. And they built concrete bunkers so people had a place to go. And the death rates in recent storms are much lower. They lower by, again, up to a factor of 100. Now, still a lot of people die, but it's thousands instead of hundreds of thousands. That's a big difference. And those are relatively straightforward things to do. There are parts of this country where we could stand to do things like that, too, and we're not doing them. Straightforward and low cost. Relatively, yes, that's right. And, you know, the the examples are, are legion. Some things are not done because... Uh, People don't think of them. Something, some things aren't done because some governments at some levels sometimes are incompetent or for some political reason. Uh, and so you have a situation like New Orleans where uh, Hurricane Katrina was able to uh, do incredible damage, partly, not entirely, but partly because the city just wasn't, you know, it wasn't prepared beforehand. It wasn't prepared with a good evacuation plan. And then the federal government didn't seem to help very much for a long time in cleaning up afterwards. So at all levels, that was a disaster, not just, a nat- it wasn't a natural disaster. That was a disaster that people helped create. And we can do better than that. Are we prepared to do better? If Katrina happened today, would the United States be better positioned based on your science and lessons we learned? I don't know how to answer that. Do you, Karen? Um, no, I think that the learning process has been going on, so we understand why people were vulnerable to Hurricane Katrina, but whether we have actually taken into account, um, you know, there are lots of things that are happening on the ground in terms of reconstruction of homes that are um, better or more, you know, raised um, and things, but it really remains to be seen when that emergency happens, whether we can um, respond. But it's a learning process, and it's iterative, and we know that um, that we have to um, to expect the unexpected. I suspect this is a case where we could probably learn some things looking to Bangladesh. Interesting. Uh, London's another case that they've done some things. Uh, they sort of planned for the 300-year flood rather than the 100-year flood. Uh, Karen O'Brien, you want to talk about mm-hmm. the, the Thames and what they've done there? Mm-hmm. The Thames barrier is, you know, they've they've really kind of changed. They've gone beyond business as usual to actually take into account different changing risk and, um, you know, different possibilities, and they've done the cost, the accounting, and, you know, they look at, climate change over the next 100 years and probabilities of the 1 in 100 flood, um, year flood might be coming down to 1 in 50 year flood and um, and the possibility that at some point you may have to just let the water in and what that means. So so there's a lot of like kind of complex thinking going on but it's an enormous social significance because so many people um, are um, living in that area. California has been doing some work learning from the Dutch, who they sort of they plan for the 300-year flood, but they you know they don't plan for the 1,000-year flood. They recognize that well, at some point there's going to be topping over those levees and have structures that are well, they might, the ground floor might get wet, and that's okay every once in a while because the cost of building for that 500 or 1,000-year flood is, is so exorbitant, especially in, in, in today's. Uh, today's situation. Um, let's, we mentioned Thailand earlier, and I want to go to, um, Toyota recently cut its, this is, this is astounding to me, and there's some other examples. Toyota recently cut its profit forecast for this fiscal year 54% because of the floods in Thailand hit production. They had a shortfall of 230,000 vehicles worldwide because of the floods in Thailand. So anyone who read the, about the floods in Thailand and said, oh, that's poor Thais, it actually hit directly hit the, the bottom line of 
the world's largest automaker. What does that tell us about our interconnectedness and our vulnerability? Chris Field? You know, in, in the climate world, we talk a lot about teleconnections, how a change in the sea surface temperature in the Pacific can influence corn yields in Africa. But I think what we're seeing now is that we're increasingly tied together by social teleconnections where a flood in Thailand influences the production of hard drives and that influences uh, Toyota or Intel or, or people um, in, in the Bay Area. And what we have found when we've looked for vulnerable regions and vulnerable sectors is that there really are vulnerable people everywhere and there are vulnerable sectors everywhere. Vulnerability is concentrated in pockets and we want to be acutely aware of those. But we need to recognize that it's very difficult to predict at this point where the connections are going to be that are going to tie those those floods in Bangkok to consequences in Japan or in California. Dave Friedberg, you have a little bit of expertise outside of agriculture. Uh, let's talk about sort of the supply chain risk, the business risk, that, that is, you know, this Thailand or whatever else. I think we might elaborate a little bit on Chris Fields mentioned Intel. They also downgraded because of Thailand. Yeah, Intel two days ago announced that their Q4 numbers were going to be significantly lower than expected because they sell a lot of semiconductors into hard drives, and the hard drive supply chain was disrupted by the Thai floods. So I think in an increasingly global economy where the supply chain extends across multiple geographies, and this goes for food as well as electronics and technology and auto and so on, um, it it starts to heighten the effects that folks have been um, predicting and forecasting for some time uh, on sort of an individual basis. So now you own Intel stock in your portfolio, you're going to start to wake up to the fact that, well, extreme weather is occurring, and it is something that can be impactful to me. What we hear a lot from farmers, for example, is that they don't really – Um, think about climate change by reading headlines about climate change forecasts. They think about climate change when they've had a significant loss two, three years in a row, and then they wake up to the scenario. And I think the psychology of risk and the psychology of loss is such that you don't necessarily put it in place and you don't necessarily think about it unless there's something you can relate to it, unless there's an experience you've had associated with it. And so as much as we can put out reports and um, there will be media coverage and so on on those reports, it's unfortunately the, the fact of human nature that unless folks have seen or experienced significant loss, they're not necessarily going to start to relate to it. And I think we're starting to see that. As these extreme weather events impact global supply chains, it's going to start to hit you either in the supermarket or in your stock portfolio or in some other way. And so more folks are going to become aware of the impact of more volatile extreme weather and climate change as a result of these experiences that they're starting to have. The Securities and Exchange Commission has rules about uh, disclosing carbon risk. Uh, in portfolios. Do you think that they ought to, or can you envision a day where regulators would say that companies need to disclose or measure extreme weather risk? That that proposal was put forward earlier this year, and I think it passed, but it's very hard to implement, and it's very hard to say what are the standards associated with it. So you have to disclose climate change risk. But Intel probably didn't say, well, floods in Thailand, we're going to get hit, right? Who thought of that? How do you know, right? I mean, how do you you model the relationship between things that have never happened before and how they could impact you? And so that's really where this discovery process begins, is when a loss or some sort of experience that you can relate to or something else that affects you in some way starts to occur, then the discovery process begins. And then folks, whether it be governments, corporations, or individuals, start to really engage in the discussion about how climate change can affect me in the future. And that's really, I think, starting to happen. Dave Freeberg is founder and CEO of the Climate Corporation. We're discussing extreme weather at, at Climate One. Anyone else want to jump in on that? Chris Field? Well, the one thing I would say is that it's, it's really important to remember that um, 
we're talking about things that have, that have never occurred before, and how do people build an awareness of that? Uh, in the climate science community, we think increasingly about building resilient societies so that they can cope with, with challenges that they haven't faced. I mean, one of the things that's very frustrating is that even in the presence of scientific information about the way things are changing, people are slow to act because they don't act until they've had the personal experience. But there are a lot of smart, low-cost things that could be done to make societies more resilient. If there's a message from our report that needs to get embedded in the fabric of society, it's that those investments can really help, and they can help deal with the unknown. Michael Oppenheimer? I, I, I don't want to sit here too long without adding that there's another pillar on which addressing this problem stands. Our report was fundamentally about how humans can reduce their vulnerability and exposure to these types of events, but we should all remember that cutting the emissions of greenhouse gases is going to cut the part of the risk that relates to the way climate is changing. And that's a, we can't really solve this problem ultimately by doing just one or the other or supporting ourselves in just one pillar. We need both of them. And recently there was a UN conference in Durban where people, countries agreed to have a legally binding agreement uh, that'll take effect in what, 2020? Was that a significant the, step forward? The, uh, the significance of that event is kind of inside baseball, but it's worth understanding. Uh, in 1995, the countries agreed to negotiate an international accord on limiting the greenhouse gases but they made an exception for the developing countries, and they said the responsibility would be on the U.S., Japan, the EU, et cetera. Uh, that, that's, you know, now 17 years ago almost. And in the meantime, the world has changed, and the biggest greenhouse gas emitter is China, and India is a big emitter, and some of the other countries like Brazil are growing in importance. And the relative importance of the U.S. and the EU, for instance, is shrinking in that, in that particular regard. So in, I think in recognition of that, uh, the countries finally managed to at least agree that there should be some sort of, uh, I don't want to exactly say binding, but legal, a legal obligation. I don't remember the exact wording. That involves all the countries, all the significant emitters. That was a major step forward, but it won't mean anything unless over the next five to ten years the countries actually start to act to reduce emissions. Now, certain parts of the world are doing things. You're doing things here in California. The, the Chinese have developed a big renewable energy industry, which could help us solve the problem quicker. But unless there's really a, a cooperative action on emissions where countries stop fighting over this and every country does what's possible and they reach some sort of international agreement to collaborate, we're just not going to avoid what the community calls dangerous climate change. Michael Oppenheimer is a professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton. Uh, anyone else want to get in on, on Durban and the significance, whether that's going to reduce the risk? Chris Field? Well, at, at Durban, I think the Durban, most UN important thing in, from the UN Climate Conference is that the countries agreed to keep talking. Uh, there are a lot of things that could be done at the local or the national scale. Michael says California has been a leader. Australia has a carbon tax now. Uh, but, the, but the fundamental thing that's going to be required in order to get the problem under control is having a, a price on carbon and that if that price is determined locally or regionally, it's just not going to work as well as if we can eventually come up with a global price and a, and a way to ensure participation by the major emitters that's consistent with their contribution to the overall problem with, with their ability to pay. It's a hard problem. It's going to take a lot of work, and it's going to take a lot of political leadership to get from where we are now to something that really works. 
Chris Field is the director of the Department of Global Ecology at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University. Dave Freeberg, uh, you're into modeling the future. Do you see a carbon price in the future in your models? Or is that outside of what you do? Outside of what we do. Um, I think that's a politically charged question. Um, we purposefully trying to avoid those. Uh, so, um, not, no, 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 again. <laughs> uh, again, so uh, we spend uh, zero time identifying uh, causality and trying to identify connections between drivers of volatility patterns. We look for patterns. We look for um, signals. We look for teleconnections. We look for analogs. We look for things that we can use to identify what the distribution of outcomes might be in the terms of weather events over the coming couple of years. Um, and we don't spend any time looking at sort of the long-term drivers as an organization. Okay, but there's a lot of scenarios, a lot of, co- lot of corporations, and perhaps some of your, if you have large clients, do model uh, scenarios in which there is a price on carbon or there isn't, because there is a price on carbon in Australia, a very low one in Europe now, so global enterprises have to kind of game this out and say, hmm, okay, where are we going to allocate capital? Uh, if there's a carbon price, it's low right now, so... So if, if, if one were to... Uh, okay, if one were to... Uh, state that they're not off that easy on that. Yeah, one. that's fine. So if there's um, a relationship between uh, carbon and climate patterns, and there's a relationship between changing climate and one's profits, you're either going to have to pay in the future, or you're going to have to pay today. And so if you're an enterprise that is going to see some impact, or there's going to be some global impact from um, changing climate patterns, or the world is going to be impacted by changing climate patterns, and that's going to be caused by something you're doing, you're going to have to pay the cost. And that you're either going to have to pay the cost in terms of lost profitability in the future, or there could be some uh, cost associated with buying um, carbon credits today to conduct your business as usual. Folks, um, as we saw with Intel, for example, folks, um, uh, the managers of public companies discount the economic impact um, that climate change can and will have on corporations. Um, and especially in an increasingly global supply chain where volatile weather can occur in lots of places, which means if you have a supply chain that's touching lots of places, you're even more affected um, by volatile weather in a, sooner, in a, in a, in a shorter period of time, um, they're going to see that, that cost. As we saw with Intel, the stock dropped 7%, lost billions of dollars in value. And so um, it starts to make sense to say, well, if there is a relationship between carbon and these sorts of effects, we should start paying up for it now, and we should start charging for it now, and hopefully reduce the effects in the future. Because so far, all of the, the conversation has been about uh, costs in the future, right, or, or consequences in the future. Oh, climate change, sea level rise will get us in 100 years, or someday climate change is really going to get us. But when it starts to affect this quarter's profits, that's a big change in terms of the, 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 the temporal relationship between uh, climate and when it's starting to hit the bottom line. We don't know that the Thai floods were a consequence of climate change. I mean, it's important to recognize that There's what no we're saying is that there. very well. You know, what we know is that uh, heavy precipitation events are increasing. Uh, the dice are being loaded, and and um, that we're not going to be able to attribute individual events. But if you went into the Intel boardroom, would you say, "Hey, look, you know, this is happening, whether whether you it's know, Thailand or whether it's another event, this is going to so hit your bottom line." So, if I were advise, advising investors, I would say, um, "You should think about paying now or paying in the future." But if I were advising the world, I would say, "Look, only a small fraction of the impacts of climate are really felt in the market. Uh, the 
there are additional impacts that are on natural ecosystems, on biological diversity, on the uh, lives of poor people who don't have um, incomes that are measured in thousands of dollars per year. And when we think about the climate problem, we want to make sure that we think about the whole problem and not just the problem that's reflected in the bottom lines of the big corporations. Right. They said that we're, as, as a species, we tend to be more or more uh, reactive to the, to the direct consequences rather than the social consequences. Indi- you know, individuals tend to be risk-averse, but when we act cooperatively, there's a tendency sometimes to underestimate these very large risks because they do cost more money up front. And whether it's, you know, constructing the levees in New Orleans so they'd only take a Category 2 storm and not didn't do it very well, and it wouldn't have done it very well anyway, or uh, the Fukushima situation where you, you know, let the waste accumulate in an area which, you know, a, a tsunami could, uh, could infiltrate. These are, this is no surprise. This happens when either private or public organizations make decisions about big things that don't happen very often. Those risks are very often underestimated. And here we have a whole set of these risks coming down at us in the future. And we really have to think sensibly about it because we can't afford to make a mistake. Karen O'Brien? Yeah, I think it really brings up ethical questions and questions of values. You know, whose values count as we determine the future? Um, and, and we know that we have a responsibility um, for some of the changes that we're um, seeing, and um, we have a responsibility towards future generations. So, so there's a lot of questions that have to really be surfaced when we're talking about how do we respond to these changes. So I can see that the businesses have an um, important interest in profits, but it is about people. It's about f- our future. And, um, you know, they're, they're, we're, if we just start to look at costs and benefits and carbon prices and things like that, we f- forget the underlying um, essence of the issue, which is about sustainability humanity. and humanity. And, and there's mm-hmm. huge debates among uh, experts in academia about what value to place, the discount rate, they call it, what value to place mm-hmm. on those future costs and, and future generations. Uh, we are going to bring a microphone up here and invite your participation um, if you're on this side of the audience, we'd invite you, please, to go around to that door where Jane Ann is in the, in the red to um, form a line. And then we have our on-deck seat right here. And uh, welcome you to, to uh, make a brief comment or a question ask, so we can get everyone to participate. We welcome you to make one one-part question. If you need some help, we'll, I'll be happy to help you with that. Um, and I want to ask one other question while we get situated. And please, this is the, often the best part of it is uh, the audience participation. So don't don't be shy. Step on up and uh, and, and do that. Um, we're discussing uh, extreme weather at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our guests are Chris Field from the Carnegie Institution for Science, Dave Freeberg from the Climate Corporation, Karen O'Brien from the University of Oslo, and Michael Oppenheimer from Princeton. Uh, let's talk about um, whether... Uh, varied vulnerability. Uh, I mean, are, are there any safe places where, uh, if you live on uh, in Princeton or, or Palo Alto, are, are you more or less at risk? Does wealth insulate people from this kind of risk? Uh, Princeton, you mentioned Princeton, a very wealthy community, but they can't get their flood situation straight. Every time there's a, one of these intense rainstorms of the type that are increasing already, uh, the roads are knocked out and the university shuts down. 
So, they, you know, it happens all the time. And New Jersey is one of the wealthiest states in the country. It's a confluence of several drainages, several rivers come down there. And they, can't, they don't want to either move the people out of the floodplains or spend the money to really defend the area. It's mostly northern to central New Jersey. So, you know, every community has some vulnerability. Chris Field, Palo Alto. Major flood, 1998. A heavy rainstorm associated with a high tide event. And sea level will, of course, exacerbate that. And it just means that um, lots and lots of houses in the floodplain end up with a basement full of water. Uh, flood is incredibly expensive to deal with. And uh, what, what we've seen globally is there's been a big increase in um, economic losses due to disasters. And, and the majority of those economic losses are are in the world's developed countries, the rich countries. Of course, the majority of the fatalities, which are also critically important, are in the world's developing countries. It was ironic that just hours before the United Nations Climate uh, Conference opened in Durban, South Africa, there was a flood there. People died, and it was. The affluent parts of the town as well as others. It's quite ironic that just literally days, hours before that happened. Let's have our audience question, please. Hello. Hi, my name's Gloria. Um, Michael Oppenheimer's seem to downplay the responsibility of the United States and China as being the largest emitters of greenhouse gases. I was watching Amy Goodman. Uh, She has a War and Peace report. She was right there uh, in Durban. And uh, people there are saying that the largest emitters, United States and China, are not taking responsibility. And they're not signing anything. They... They're not part of the Kyoto conference, and they're just shirking the responsibility. How do you feel about that? understood me. By no means meant that the U.S. and China weren't and shouldn't be responsible for the emissions that they're causing. What I said was that after an agreement uh, 17 years ago, when the developed countries like the United States uh, argued that they uh, accepted the responsibility as the only countries that should work to control their emissions, that the things have changed because other countries like China, like India, like Brazil have become more important. Look, the U.S. has been doing this for a long time. They have, in my view, the primary responsibility to cut their emissions. But that doesn't help that much anymore if half the world's emissions are coming from what used to be the developing countries. So I just mean everybody has a responsibility as an American I'd love to see us take leadership on this issue, which we haven't done lately. Let me Chris make Field. one brief additional comment. You know, it, it, it is indisputably true that China is now the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, but per capita emissions in China are only about a third of what they are in the U.S., per person emissions. Uh, the, the per capita GDP in China is still less than it is in Mexico. China is a developing country. The legitimate aspirations of their population aren't yet being met. So when we think about ways to come up with globally equitable solutions, we need to keep that kind of factor in mind. We had Ed Markey here, uh, co-author of the Waxman-Markey bill, and he said most of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is red, white, white and blue. Um, let's have our next audience question. Hello, my name is Peter Sloat. Pivoting a little <coughs> bit from weather to energy, I wonder how much it registers. Uh, we are so focused on energy production, and energy efficiency, um, and to what degree is the international community uh, engaged in the embodied energy of stuff, of ma- the material world and all the energy it takes to extract, produce, and dispose of all that? I'd give a shout-out right now to a report that just came out, and I wonder if any of you are aware of it, uh, by the Telesis 
TELUS Institute. Um, just out last week, more jobs, less pollution, growing the U.S. recycling economy in the U.S. And um, the role of material management, both uh, the materials that we make our products from and also our agricultural materials, how much is that registering in the international scientific community? Who would like to take that one? You know, Chris I, I think that in embodied energy, how much energy it takes to make stuff is a, is a key topic. Uh, there's a lot of focus in the scientific community on uh, life cycle analysis. And particularly recently, there's been a lot of focus appropriately on the life cycle analysis of um, energy production, particularly production of um, petroleum from the tar sands, where you basically have to put in bunches and bunches of energy in order to get a little bit of energy out. And that's the main argument, I think, against this XL pipeline, is that we're sort of locking ourselves into one of the most polluting sources of fossil energy. As we look around the world, I think that we want to look not only at, at embodied energy, but also sort of the operating energy. And the last thing we want to do is uh, is uh, build ourselves a, a global economy that, that was cheap in energy terms to build, but expensive in energy terms to operate. So we have a, a multi-parameter solution we want to be looking at. And I'll just mention, we've had a couple of discussions here recently with Paul Gilding, author of a book called The Great Disruption, Richard Heinberg, who wrote a book called Beyond Growth, looking at sort of an economy that's not so dependent on, on growth, selling more stuff, and looking at, at a sort of a, a you know, different paradigm that's not so growth-obsessed. And so there's people thinking deeply about those sorts of things. And that podcast is available. Yes, let's have our next audience question. This question is for Mr. Friedberg. Um, up to now, you've been talking a lot about um, your corporation, but you've separated yourself somewhat from academia and politics. But it sounds like you have a large amount of data and you're doing a lot of things with it. I wonder if you can comment more about like what you think the scientists around you and professors could do with that or how you could contribute to this conversation um, in a very political way. In a very political way. We, <laughs> yeah. we, um, we have a lot of data and we do a lot of modeling and a lot of the, um, the folks that do the modeling on our team are PhDs and graduates of programs where I'm sure folks here have, have taught. Um, I think that a lot of the um, leadership comes from the scientific community and comes from the research community. We try and create an application um, for a lot of the work that goes on in terms of climate modeling, climate research. Um, and sometimes we actually take it a step further and we're starting to become more leading edge rather than following in terms of the research that's being done out there in, in climate modeling. And we want to start to share that, that work and the information that, that we're creating and outputting um, from our systems in a broader way. And so we ha have a dialogue that we have developed and will continue to develop with the uh, academic community. From a politics perspective, um, the reason I say that we don't get in the conversation and we try and avoid the, um, the discussion around um, climate change causality is because it doesn't have a direct application on our customers, and our customers may disagree with what our position might be, um, and so that's why we avoid the, the dialogue altogether. Um, we, we spend a lot of time, though, on, on sort of open government and open data initiatives, and this, I think, is really important because as soon as you start to unlock data, um, you start to uh, enable folks that otherwise may not have been looking at that data to start to discover and identify um, uh, new signals, new trends, and, and, and new pieces of um, information and ways to model data that can start to be useful to the world. Um, and so we're a big supporter of uh, the Obama CTO um, uh, and the FCC chairman's um, right. efforts for open data. Um, a lot of what they do enables our business 
And we think globally um, weather data is locked up in a lot of um, countries and jurisdictions from sort of commercial applications like ours. And uh, that can be really useful if it can be unlocked and it can be enabled to, um, uh, to drive interesting research and applications. But you're backed by some of the biggest venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. You're a former Googler, I believe, and, and Google's an investor uh, in, in Climate Corporation. Google certainly has been more outspoken about energy policy and do, not do evil. What would be so bad about talking to, to farmers about, yeah, you know, not really saying that they have to believe in, in climate science to buy your product, but those who do, can I, you know, connect the dots a little bit and sort of use the opportunity you have with farmers, you know, given... Oh, f- farmers believe in climate change. Our customers believe in climate change. They believe that there's a, a changing atmosphere. It's this question of causality and, and, and carbon and, and so on being the driver of it versus long-term trends or cycles that may be what we're experiencing. And so that's the dialogue that we avoid. Okay. Let's have our next audience question. Yeah, hi. Uh, why is it that few people who are not experts have been able to take over this debate? And uh, I feel that science is, you know, on defense over the last 10 years in spite of being overwhelmingly right. Uh, how do we correct this? Uh, how do we put science back into the position of respect that it used to be in the 70s and 80s when I came to this country and went to Stanford and so on. But it seems like today, uh, someone with a high school education with a microphone gets more following than somebody who is a professor at Stanford or Princeton. I I think there are two... Michael Oppenheimer. Yeah, there are two reasons, at least, why things have uh, gone the way they have. Number one... Climate change, in some ways, is bad news, and who wants to hear it? You know, I I can't read the stories about Iran's nuclear capacity anymore, so I get up and I skip those stories in the newspaper. So my my headache is climate change. There are a lot of people who don't want climate change as a headache, so there's a natural, you know, there's an overload with problems these days, and the economy's bad. This is one that they can put to the side, because in most people's lives, they don't see it happening right now. So there's one reason. The other is the people who don't want anything done about climate change because they have a financial stake in not doing anything about it, um, the industries that are dependent on coal, for instance, uh, have spent a considerable amount of money giving uh, a megaphone and a big one to people who have a contrarian opinion on the science. And the combination of those two factors is very, very harmful. On the other hand, I have to say that if you took away the contrarians, I'm not sure that it would have made that much difference in how far we've gotten today. Uh, This is a tough problem. Governments, for a variety of political reasons, have difficulty dealing with it. It's, you know, it's got long lags in the system. Uh, Most of the cost of doing something is here. Most of the bad effects are out there. And as a result, it was never going to be easy to try to put a positive view on it. Serious public action started on this problem about 20 years ago. And if you gauge it by other problems, we're probably somewhere in the middle in the direction of getting to really serious action on it. Unfortunately, uh, the consequences are irreversible once you build up the stuff in the atmosphere, so it's not like other problems, and that's a severe negative. But we're by no means standing still. We're learning. We're changing. We're going to grapple with the problem eventually. Unfortunately, we won't avoid all the, the nasty consequences. Michael Oppenheimer is a professor at Princeton. Uh, before I go to Karen O'Brien, I'll just mention that on the Climate One website, there's a fantastic 10-minute video uh, 
uh, featuring Steven Schneider. We gave an award here last week in his honor, and it really eloquently gets at the science and the distortion of science and some of the, I think, the root of what, you, what you're talking about in your question. That's at climate-one.org. It's really worth watching. Uh, Karen O'Brien, would you like to get in on that? Yeah, just from a social science perspective, we're talking about um, climate change as if it's a belief. I believe in climate change, and I don't. And indeed, it is about belief systems as much as anything. And I think the scientists can take it back by talking about understandings of climate change and really getting it down to what we know and don't know about causality in the system rather than keeping it as I believe or I don't believe. Karen O'Brien is a professor at the University of Oslo. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, my name is Jeff Potter, and just today I received a letter from my insurance company that indicated their payouts last year were twice the year before. And it's my understanding that the insurance companies, a huge industry, are starting to panic. And uh, I'm just wondering whether there was any indication of that uh, at Durban or uh, whether there's been any movement in sort of mobilizing the insurance industry. Dave Freeberg, you deal directly with them, the insurance companies yeah. are in the insurance so business. So over the past several years, all the major reinsurers have set up uh, climate change working groups, and, and some of them have fully formed, fully operational climate change teams that try and model what increasing volatility and weather patterns are going to do to their um, core businesses. Auto insurance is one of these businesses, as, as an example, that's considered very stable. I mean, you're not going to get in more accidents, right? Same number of people driving, going to get in the same number of accidents each year. Well, in the U.K., they had record claims rates on auto insurance this past year as a result of significant cold weather, driving more frost on the roads, driving more accidents. And who would have thunk it? So now these auto insurers have hundreds of millions of pounds of losses, which some of them can't afford to pay, and they're not adequately reinsured um, for that one particular circumstance. So, yes, um, insurance companies specifically are, um, I don't think the word is panicking, but are responding to what they are now seeing as the reality of a changing climate and changing volatility and weather patterns, where what are considered to be standard lines, non-risky insurance programs like auto are starting to cause significant losses as a result of the weather. Wow, surprise me, and I need to actually do something about it. And so we're starting to see that across, um, I think, all groups, all insurance companies, all reinsurers. And um, they're spending a lot of time trying to model what they don't know how to model. And so that's going to cause rates to go up because that uncertainty is what's going to make things more expensive. And it's going to end up uh, driving premiums up and obviously making it difficult for folks in a commercial setting, for example, to do business as usual when they have to pay so much to insure against certain things occurring. Dave Freeberg is founder and CEO of the Climate Corporation. So we have more expensive food, more expensive insurance. More expensive everything. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, uh, my name's Ali, mm. and um, what, the question I have is, as a as the public listens to these debates, um, you know, we hear about large conferences, UN conferences, government officials meeting, but it's somewhat distant. We don't hear enough about what I, as an individual, need to do. What is my impact? What is my footprint? How am I contributing? And I. So I'm curious about how you think the public can start to really touch their um, impact on this. And I have a feeling that once that's understood at the individual level, you know, things might change. But as long as it's such a very distant debate from us, we we listen to it. We're inspired by it, but nothing really happens. It's not here now. Karen O'Brien? Yeah, I think that um, it's really important to recognize that there's not one solution to climate change. It's not on a international protocol or things. It's, it has to happen at all levels. And each of us as individuals 
has a circle of influence and we can do things and we are agents of change and to recognize in our heads that we are creating change and we can create an alternative future it means that we have to mobilize individually and collectively and so i think you know climate change can be such an abstract distant problem and you know nonlinear complex systems is hard for us to grasp but we actually can do things you know each, whether it is eating less meat whether it is um you know um, personal changes, but it is also about creating the systems transformations that are necessary. And I think more and more of us are convinced and looking at the research on transformation because we know that business as usual, no matter what, is not going to get us to where we, um, you know, to the what we consider to be not dangerous climate change from a human security perspective. And as we need to close here, let's pivot on that. And, and, and a lot of the individual behavior uh, questions are about mitigation. How do we reduce our own personal footprint? Uh, let's talk about adaptation and resilience. I'd like to know what each of you have done at home in your lifetime. Whether you, you get Chris Field, you got some food in your basement, or if you bought some land somewhere uh, far away that you're going to run to when the when it all starts to come down. Um, well, I actually, I'm going to answer the previous question. Okay. And and you know, I think we need to think about personal actions on three different levels. There's personal choices, and that includes some adaptation mm-hmm. mechanisms. But but a lot of our choices are about how energy-intensive, how carbon-intensive our lifestyle. Um, my family's just finishing construction of a passive house. I bike to work. We have all LED lights. There, there are exciting opportunities for decreasing your costs at the same time that you can decrease your carbon footprints. Uh, also Those all- LED lights are expensive. I got some. They're like 60 bucks well, a then pop. Within the last year, the price has come down by a factor of two, thanks to Chinese engineering. But yeah. um, <laughs> the second thing that's a real opportunity is is personal leadership. And in your family, in the place where you work, in your church, uh, helping people understand the issue and the range of options that are available can really make a difference. And, but the third thing is that some of these problems do need to be solved by governments, and state government, national government, and, and your vote, and uh, asking your politicians to really make climate a priority are critical parts of this sort of three-part solution set. Let's finish with Michael Oppenheimer and David Friedberg on either your personal adaptation or mitigation. Um, mitigation, I, when I moved into a new house a few years ago, I put in all, I'm sorry, compact fluorescent bulbs. I know that's so yesterday, but it's, you know. That's so 2000. And I started yeah. saving a lot of money. It made a huge difference, and it was the right thing to do. Uh, um, interesting. Just quickly, when the hurricane came last summer, I wasn't home, and I called up. My daughter was home alone, and I called her up, and I said, uh, drive a nail in that window in front. It was an old single glazed window. It was too lazy to change it. She didn't, she didn't want to bother. I got a friend of mine to come over. He hammered it in a nail. The window survived the hurricane, but then I couldn't open it after it. It was dead. So now I'm going to replace all my windows and finally get the double glazed. Uh, as far as adaptation is concerned, uh, you know, I live in Manhattan and I measured very carefully. Um, five meters above sea level, which is just about going to be beachfront if one of the ice sheets goes. So I'm just going to sit there and wait and let it happen. The land is going to be worth even more money. You'll get a kayak for your, to get out of your New York apartment. Uh, Dave Freeberg? Uh, from a corporate perspective, there have been, from a business perspective, there have been a number of um, studies recently that identified ways to adapt to changing climate by introducing diversification into the kind of business that you're operating. So if there is going to be a substantial weather event that's going to cause an impact in your supply chain or in your production capabilities or what have you, um, it makes sense to start to do more in a more diverse way, have more businesses in more locations. Farmers are being encouraged to use to cycle through multiple crops, to farm two crops over the same area that they otherwise wouldn't. So rather than optimize for profitability or optimize for 
um, highest revenue start to optimize for risk-adjusted revenue. So try and introduce multiple crops that can be affected by the weather in different ways. From an individual perspective, um, um, I'm compelled by a presentation that Bill Gates gives about um, energy policy being sort of the, the driving force behind our ability to influence this. And um, if there's any um, uh, Occupy X movement that I think could be really effective and have the biggest change in terms of doing good for the world, it would probably be Occupy Energy Policy. So it would be great to see um, folks get individually educated about um, energy policy and um, uh, try and support uh, initiatives that we think can have a real global impact because it's really difficult to get everyone to change their behavior on a, on a very local basis, and you need to have governments involved in, in changing how we operate as a, as a so- social group. And Bill Gates calls for a lot of government investment in technology and innovation. Right? Um, Karen O'Brien? Last yeah, one. my friends and family say that if we just kept me home from all these climate meetings, we'd solve the problem. But um, instead, since I don't control that, I'm a vegetarian, and I put in a heat pump at home and try to reduce my emissions every other way possible. I just want to speak into partly a generational problem. And I see, I have a young kid, and I see his friends and how they talk about these things. And it's going to change partly from that perspective. I've got a number of people here saying that's what's going to be the real real driver, including uh, Pete McCloskey recently, one of the uh, co-authors of the Endangered Species Act, said it's going to be the kids who are going to do it. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Chris Field, Director of the uh, Department of Global Ecology at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford, Dave Freeberg, founder and CEO of the Climate Corporation, Karen O'Brien, Professor of Sociology and Human Geography at the University of Oslo, and Michael Oppenheimer, Professor of Geosciences and International Affairs at Princeton. That is a lot to say. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for coming to Climate One. Mm-hmm.